Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Terry Talks Fiction. I'm not sure whether to be proud or horrified that we've managed to get back on the train and have two episodes out in two weeks. It nearly didn't happen actually because in the interim I managed to pick up a horrible head cold which means I might still sound a little interesting uh, as I'm probably going to be speaking here with a sort of deep and manly sounding voice for the first time ever. And apologies if the cuts seem a little strange this week as I'm desperately trying to cut out the sound of hacking coughs. But we're here and I also want to extend a thanks to everyone who reached out after the last episode to give their book recommendations for the year. There were some really interesting reads that people highlighted, most of which were new names and even new authors to me, so I have a lot to look forward to over the New Year's break when it comes to reading new things. And I'll be putting all those suggestions together in a special listeners episode at the end of the month. So if you have a favourite read from the year that's been, or a favourite any fiction from the upcoming episodes as well, TV, movies, webcomics, then drop a line and I'll make sure to include that in the end of year summary as well. But for today, we're not going to talk about books. We're going to look at another aspect of talking fiction. Because let's be real, this year has been exhausting. And when it gets to the end of the day, I find I don't always have the stamina for sitting down and getting lost in a book. Or sometimes a certain book is facing me, I'm looking at you, Brandon Sanderson's Rhythm of War, which I know the moment I start it, I won't be able to put it down, even if that means staying up all night. And I have responsibilities tomorrow, damn it. So when those moments hit, it's time to flop on the couch, open the laptop and watch some TV or a movie. And this year saw a great slate of incredible fiction that was either just ending, just beginning, or designed as a one-off experience. I'm much more of a sort of a TV series guy myself, and that's probably going to be reflected in the discussion of these picks. I usually find that a series has scope to get into more exciting and deeper world building with the longer time frame that they're working with compared to a movie. But sometimes movies are able to cheat a little on that account as well, much like a painter using just a trowel with quick and broad strokes which can suggest incredible detail when viewed together at the end. We'll talk more about movies in an upcoming podcast, but today I'm going to drill down into the top five TV series that I watched throughout 2020. I'll try to avoid major spoilers ahead, but in order to facilitate a well-rounded discussion of the themes that are in the series and the way that the series progresses, I'll probably have to include some minor ones here. So ye be warned, all those who tread any further. And with no further ado, let's get straight into it. The first TV series to make my list of the best I watched through 2020 is The Good Place, created by Michael Schur. Now, by the time we made it to December this year, you'd probably be forgiven if you'd forgotten that the final episode of the four-season running exploration of philosophy, morality, death, and universal good that was The Good Place aired in January of this year. I sure know that I almost had forgotten. But the series, and the few final episodes in particular that came out in 2020, were such an incredible send-off to what was, for me, a series which had its ups and downs, but ultimately ended in, appropriately, 
a really good place. I'm forever fascinated by concepts of eternity in fiction, whether that be magical or scientific immortality, representations of the afterlife, time travel, or other explorations of legacy, change, and timelessness. I suspect it's the historian in me, horrified in equal measure that so much of history on both sides of me will forever remain unobservable to me, and the knowledge of how quickly time will just erase all traces of my existence in the universe. So this was a series that seemed designed to scratch that particular, highly specific itch. And boy, it really delivered. On the off chance you're unfamiliar with The Good Place by now, the series focuses on not the life of, but the afterlife of one Eleanor Shellstrop, who, after a fatal shopping cart accident, awoke to find herself in The Good Place the eternal reward for the most morally upstanding souls following their time on Earth. The problem is, Eleanor was a mean-spirited individual at best, and a pretty shitty person if you're being more honest. Thus begins the series, with a delicious tension as Eleanor tries to pass herself off as a good place resident, conscripting other new arrivals to the afterlife neighbourhood and learning that not everything in this supposedly perfect ever after is quite as perfect as it seems. Over the course of the full four seasons, however, that initial scope changes and after a few twists and turns to the narrative, you see characters being sent back to Earth or journeying through both the bad place and the good place in search of securing themselves and humanity in general the best possible eternity. One that preferably would not include either eyeball needles or butthole spiders. At times, especially in the first half of season two and through the middle of season three, I personally felt that the drift away from the initial premise didn't always serve the story well. Much as we were talking last week with Mary Robinette Cowell's The Relentless Moon, it's difficult to shake up central supports of the narrative and successfully get the audience to adapt to those changes. But, having stuck the course, I was so incredibly impressed by the way all those various plot threads were entwined in the final episodes of the series. Anyone who ever watched Firefly or the Matrix movies knows how gut-wrenchingly common it is for a series to end abruptly or to overstay its welcome by turning into something almost unrecognisable from the themes that made its beginning so strong. The Good Place does neither. It's perfectly paced and it knows when it's the appropriate time to bow and exit the stage. And what a way it picked to go out too. The resolution to the story is poignant, heartbreaking, thrilling, and just peaceful. It's not what you might expect going into the series, but it's absolutely cathartic and totally appropriate for the characters and the growth they've sustained throughout their years together. It's the part of the hero's journey that we don't often get to see. The part where the hero, finally, can be at rest. If you haven't seen the series... Or if you dropped out after season one like I almost did, it's really worth sticking the course. If life truly is defined by the fact that it ends, then the same can be said for a body of fiction. This ends so, so well, 
that the entire series is worth your time to experience that ending. And if that concept sounds a little strange, I only have three words to leave you with by way of comparison. Game of Thrones. The next series I wanted to highlight was another that came to a close in 2020, and that's the long-running TV and movie story of Steven Universe, created by Rebecca Sugar. Starting in 2013 as a TV series, which ran until 2019, which was followed by a movie, and then by a follow-up series called The Steven Universe Future, the long and storied tale of Steven and the Crystal Gems came to a close, much like The Good Place, early in 2020. And much like The Good Place, the final ending of Steven's story was unexpected, heartwarming, and like the entire series itself, so full of hope and joy that it was almost an inoculation against everything else this year has thrown at us. At the simplest level, Steven Universe is a science fantasy story for children about the titular Steven, a half-human, half-alien hybrid child who's growing up and learning how to protect the Earth from alien monsters using his magical powers. But even that explanation points to one of the core themes of the story, and the sheer world-building and emotional depth of the series. Because, in order for Steven to be born, and born with those powers that make him so valuable to the monster-hunting team, his alien mother had to cease to exist. And although the orphaned hero story is nothing new, the angle on this one is deeply emotive and powerfully represented by the narrative throughout the series. And for the functionally immortal gems that are raising Stephen as one of their own, aliens of hard light constructs around a central sort of database-like precious stone, such as sapphire or ruby or amethyst or even a pearl, the cessation of existence like this is something that has literally never happened before. So when they look at Stephen, carrying his mother's quartz stone, along with her set of magical alien powers embedded in his flesh, they see something new, and someone who is full of potential to be the best of both worlds. That expectation is felt keenly by Stephen, and is at war with his desperate desire to know more about his mother and her choices, so that he can come to understand who he is, and fully understand and accept the conditions around him coming into existence. I was a latecomer to Steven Universe, only having discovered the series in 2018, but I'm glad I discovered it when I did. As a kid's show, the 10 to 15 minute long episodes are really digestible when you're an adult sprawled over your couch and watching an entire series on your phone in one evening. But the themes that the show deals with and explores are absolutely incredible. Continually reinforcing the key themes of love and respect, the show deals with everything from coming of age to coming out, gender dysphoria, sex, rape, mental illness, and above all, the usually unexamined burdens of being a chosen one. And some not surface level burdens either. This isn't struggling to keep your secret identity from a boyfriend or girlfriend. This is a burden like measuring up to the impossible standards of your mother's memory 
and what that emotionally does to someone who's told, matter-of-factly and without malice, but still told as a child, that to inherit their quartz gem from their mother, it meant irrevocably deleting her from the universe. There's no afterlife in this story, just a cold and final a removal from existence as wiping a hard drive to install a new operating system. And the show dives deep into how that burden changes as Stephen grows older and moves from childhood to young adulthood, learning more about his mother and beginning to see better than anyone which parts of that story he's trying to live up to are just myth, which are deliberately misrepresented, and which were outright and damaging lies that led to the still continuing pain and suffering of everyone who remembers her fondly. The series' end of Stephen Universe Future in 2020 was incredible for many of the same reasons that I enjoyed the ending of The Good Place. Having already suffered from the dreaded, unexpected refusal by the studio to renew the series, or at least if it wasn't unexpected, that's what it felt like, the final episodes of the general series were horribly rushed, scrambling to pull together all the major threads of an epic story that had been years in the making, and felt like it was expecting to have a couple more years to bring those pieces into place. But thanks to a huge support from by its fan base, the series got a chance to expand on the rapid and pretty unsatisfying ending in a movie and this follow-up series, and it was all the better for it. Again, this is a series that ends in a place I didn't expect, but which is, finally, completely appropriate for the character and reflective of their journey throughout the story. When the credits rolled for the last time, I was openly weeping. In fact, I might have to come back and do a full series breakdown of Steven Universe for the incredible world building and the character arcs in this show someday. It really is phenomenal. And now that you have the entire slate open to you, I can't encourage you more than to get on board and give it a chance. Start to finish. But shifting away now from series which have just finished to one that's only just beginning, my next top TV pick for the year is The Witcher on Netflix. This was a big year for me across The Witcher series in general, actually. Not only did I complete The Witcher 3 on the Nintendo Switch in its entirety for the first time, I'd never played the Blood and Wine expansion where my Xbox was still working, I also read one of the Witcher books by Andrzej Sapkowski for the first time as well. In fact, it was the book upon which this series was based, The Last Wish. And although it didn't make my list of top books in the podcast last week, you can hear me discussing what I thought about it in detail on my other podcast, Science, Sex and Sorcery, where I and my co-host, HarperCollins UK author Belinda Misson, take it in turns to pick a sci-fi, romance, or fantasy novel for the other to read and discuss it on the show. I'll put a link to that podcast in the show notes when it goes live. So in this year that was personally quite full of The Witcher, the TV series stands out for both some really great and, eh, some not-so-great ways. Adapting the series of short stories of The Last Wish as discrete TV episodes seems like it would be a real no-brainer. 
and for the most part, this format does work really well, especially since the long timescale between the individual stories gives the TV series a lot of scope to pull from other parts of the Witcher lore and fill in those gaps. I particularly notice this where it comes to the character of Yennefer of Vengerberg. She was absolutely fascinating in this story, and I'd argue that this series was more her tale than it was Geralt's. We see her go from a hunchbacked bastard child of a pig farmer, who sold her off to a college of sorceresses for a fraction of the price of pork, to growing into an angry and powerful woman obsessed with influence and control whose sheer bloody-mindedness makes her capable of channeling lightning and enough magical fire to single-handedly destroy an army. Whereas Geralt enters this tale already a witcher, already an expert in all things monster hunting, and already jaded by his decades of experience doing this job. It seems obvious that when Season 2 begins, we're going to get a lot more of Geralt's story probably similar to the way we got Yennefer's, when they travel back to Kaer Morhen and to the care of Vesemir, the witcher who raised Geralt like his own son. Into all that dynamic comes Ciri, a child of prophecy and incredible magic power, who is the centre of a war of conquest and a broken promise to Geralt. As this series progresses, we watch the winds of fate conspire to draw the three protagonists together with the inexorable doom of an iceberg heading toward an ocean liner. As one long character study of these three central protagonists, it is so incredible. They're each distinct and unique and really, really interesting. Well, they're mostly distinct and unique. The only real thing that landed poorly with me was probably just one of those things that's really hard to avoid when you're adapting stories which are almost 30 years old and putting them on TV for a modern audience. A lot of the narrative beats in this story just seem to be predetermined and unavoidable, especially the way that the entire series concludes and where Ciri and Geralt end up. And Ciri herself isn't as unique a character as she may have been that 30 years ago. The just innate nature of this incredible power that she has is a very modern approach to the fantasy genre. And it kind of sits poorly on top of the more traditional style that The Witcher is told in. Whereas on the one hand, we've spent an entire series building up and showing Yennefer as she grows from someone who can't control her magic at all to someone who can control everything. We juxtapose that with Ciri, who has the classic falls backwards into using her power to incredible effect with no effort at any time. Honestly, the aspect of Ciri as being this powerful creature came across much better in the video game. But even with that, the overall series impressed me so much and got me so excited for the next season. 
that it absolutely makes my list for the year. I want more of The Witcher and The Witcher's World, and I cannot wait until it's available. Another cartoon series that I jumped aboard this year, although it had been running for a few seasons already, is Infinity Train, created by Owen Dennis. Now, I first got turned on to this series through a tip on Twitter, and on the face of it, I thought the idea of an extra-dimensional train with a seemingly infinite number of carriages, each holding an infinite variety of pocket worlds where passengers must journey through in order to confront their weaknesses, face their demons, and grow as people, already had incredible potential. But I was blown away by just how well that potential was realised. Throughout its three seasons, the show has covered everything from the right to life and the right to death, trans issues, fear of isolation, the damage of both emotional openness and emotional closure, propaganda, faith, and the willingness or inability to confront doctrine with facts. Add in that the carriage environments are wildly inventive and complex, and that the writing team aren't afraid to cycle major characters out of the story forever as passengers disembark the train, continuing the meta-narrative across seasons by focusing each new seasonal story arc on a minor character who appeared in the season before, and you have got an incredible mix when you bring all that together. It is also one of those series that just keeps getting better and better with time. The first season was great, focusing around a new passenger to the train and their journey to work their way through it while helping its denizens wherever she could, such as the delightfully charming robot One One, one half always optimistic, the other one always pessimistic, the noble king of the corgi carriage, and a mirror version of herself. And that season serves as a wonderful introduction to the conceit and the potential of the series. But it's the second and third seasons where that potential is taken to the extremes where it really shines. I chewed through the entire second season in one night, unable to tear my eyes away from the protagonist's story. This time, Metal Tulip, the mirror version of the protagonist from the first season, and their struggle for escape and acceptance as the individual that they chose to be, rather than the individual they were designed to reflect. And after that, well, I personally really chafed at the third season when it began. It focused on a group of characters I was the least interested in, and in fact, I actively disliked. The Apex Gang, a group of human passengers determined to do anything and everything they can to continue living on the train, which means acting in ways contrary to emotional growth and self-betterment at every turn. And I didn't hate this group in the good, are you supposed to hate them, kind of way. I hated them in the, ah... This series isn't what I wanted it to be anymore, kind of way. But after sticking it through the first few episodes of that season, all that bitterness paid off incredibly well in the run toward the final episodes, 
with the show going to some incredibly dark places in absolutely brutal fashion, confronting things like the grief of loss, the danger of creed and tribalism, and presenting the idea of death as absolute oblivion in a cartoon designed for children. The whole thing is masterful. It's filled with incredible themes and phenomenal characters. And if that's not enough to get you in, the voice acting cast for this is also superb. Highly, highly worth watching. And speaking of superb, to close out my list of the best TV I consumed during 2020, I have something which was a very late addition and nearly didn't make it on here. In fact, I only watched it during the last week because I was afraid to start watching it. I'd heard it was incredible, and I believed what I'd heard. It wasn't one of those cases where I was afraid of being burned or having my hopes up and then feeling them get dashed. And believe me, we're talking about a franchise which has done exactly that to me more than once before. That franchise is Star Wars, and that series is The Mandalorian. For years, I've been saying that I love Star Wars. But that's not really true. It's truer to say that when I was a kid, I loved Star Wars. When my parents took me to see the cinematic re-release of the special edition of the original trilogy in 1997, I fell in love, and I used that love to define myself all throughout school and through more university than I'd like to admit. And while I actually really and legitimately enjoyed the modern post-Disney takeover trilogy, I enjoyed it like I enjoy any other pretty cool movie. It followed the same declining path of engagement I'd been feeling with the series since the prequel trilogy. That same spark, the same magic which had grabbed me and never let go back in 1997, just wasn't there anymore. I recognise that part of that is because I have changed over the past 20 or so years, I'm not a 10-year-old anymore, but part of it is also the undeniable fact that Star Wars has changed as well. Each new iteration, each new movie is a reflection of the time period in which it was made. Film in the 70s and 80s was very different to the turn of the millennium, and both are very different to today. The narrative tropes and the filmography are completely different as is the way we interact with our media. But the discussion where I go to the wall in unabashed defence for why each movie in the modern trilogy is good, actually, and why the reasons you think you don't like them aren't actually what you think they are, is a discussion for another time. We're here now to talk about The Mandalorian. Last year... When the overwhelmingly positive reviews for The Mandalorian began pouring in and Baby Yoda started taking over memes across the internet, 
and I heard that the style of the show was a return to the classic roots of slapping a veneer of space fantasy over the spaghetti western and samurai movie elements that influenced so much of Lucas's early work, my heart leapt and shattered. Because, and here's the silly reason that kept me away from this series for way too long. I'd been saying sometimes, all right, often obnoxiously, to anyone who'd listen since Revenge of the Sith came out in 2005, that what Star Wars fans actually wanted wasn't more movies with more impressive lightsaber battles or even stories about the Jedi at all. It was all the other parts of the Star Wars universe, which were perfectly suited for TV. The stories of the cops on Coruscant, dealing with turf wars between the Huts and the Black Sun Syndicate. And if you had to, having only the appearance of Jedi being as these whirlwinds of procedural destruction, carving their way through months of undercover operations, while on completely unrelated missions of their own, and mind-tricking confessions out of people that you couldn't use in court, and you would never get them to say again. Or the stories of Wedge Antilles and Rogue Squadron dogfighting against the Empire in their X-Wings like a World War II aerial battle movie. Or a series about bounty hunters. And as someone who'd always wanted to be a writer, I always held that little shred of hope in my heart that one day, one day when I was a big and famous writing name and I could pitch my own ideas to people who could actually make sort of things happen then I could blow the dust off these old ideas and present them and make something out of them. So I was devastated that someone else got there first. And it took going through almost all of 2020 to make me realise just what a sook I was being about the whole thing and to finally sit down and give it a go and let myself love it. And guys, it has been everything I've ever wanted. Everything from the world to the characters to the style. It's all what everyone has said it is. Pitch perfect Star Wars. And while I haven't yet watched season two, I've only just finished season one, as I said, I can at least say that if you, like me, had avoided The Mandalorian for some reason, and if you do or ever did get some enjoyment from the Star Wars franchise, then you should really make the time and enjoy some incredible storytelling that finally makes use of the enormity of the sandbox, which is the Star Wars universe, and finally gives us a protagonist that we can root for and get invested in, who is not a Skywalker. And now, after having taken up way too much of your time, I'll leave my list of the best TV I watched this year. How much of this was on your own personal watch list through 2020? And most importantly, did you enjoy it if you watched it? Or did some of these have a different impact on you? I'd love to hear your thoughts, either by email at terrytalksfiction at gmail.com, on the Facebook group, or through the Discord server, which you can access by signing up to get free monthly stories sent to you at www.terrytalksfiction.com. I can't wait to hear from you and get the discussion going, and hopefully to 
discover some other really great fiction that I haven't come across yet that you can tell me about. Next week, we're going to be looking at some of the best fiction I read this year in webcomics. Narrative-based webcomics, that is. Although there are a couple of rapid-fire reviews for the Gagaday newspaper strip-like comics I couldn't stop returning to for much-needed laughs this year as well. There's some incredible storytelling in these webcomics, and I can't wait to share them with you so that you can check them out yourselves. But until then, goodbye, and I look forward to talking again soon.